coming up in this episode. What you're hearing were the moments before, during, and after an explosion in Manchester Arena in Britain on May 22nd at the conclusion of a concert by pop star Ariana Grande. Our thoughts are with those 22 victims that we now know have died, the 59 people who have been injured and their loved ones. As a result of vigorous round-the-clock investigations, authorities found it necessary to change their security profile. It is now concluded, on the basis of today's investigations, that the threat level should be increased for the time being, from severe to critical. The attack, the work of a suicide bomber, was a game changer. How did he get there without being known? People talk about individuals like this being on the radar. That doesn't mean anything to me. Being on the radar could be 5,000 people. I need to know what tier he's at. Is he at the highest tier, which means physical surveillance, or is he just on a watch list? And coming up on this program, we sort out what happened, the investigation, and how this will impact security in the U.S. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Monday night, May 22nd, this is what happened at Manchester Arena in the UK, in the words of British Prime Minister Theresa May. At 10.33 last night, the police were called to reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena in Manchester City Centre near Victoria train station. We now know that a single terrorist detonated his improvised explosive device near one of the exits of the venue, deliberately choosing the time and place to cause maximum carnage and to kill and injure indiscriminately. The explosion coincided with the conclusion of a pop concert, which was attended by many young families and groups of children. All acts of terrorism are cowardly attacks on innocent people, but this attack stands out for its appalling, sickening cowardice, deliberately targeting innocent, defenseless children and young people who should have been enjoying one of the most memorable nights of their lives. As things stand, I can tell you that in addition to the attacker, 22 people have died and 59 people have been injured. Those who were injured are being treated in eight different hospitals across Greater Manchester. Many are being treated for life-threatening conditions. And we know that among those killed and injured were many children and young people. We struggle to comprehend the warped and twisted mind that sees a room packed with young children not as a scene to cherish, 
but as an opportunity for carnage. But we can continue to resolve to thwart such attacks in future, to take on and defeat the ideology that often fuels this violence, and if there turn out to be others responsible for this attack, to seek them out and bring them to justice. As this podcast was being produced, late in the afternoon on May 24th, here's where it stood. I think it's very clear that this is a network that we are investigating. And as I've said, it continues at a pace. Uh, There's extensive investigations going on uh, and activity taking place across Greater Manchester as we speak. That's Ian Hopkins, Chief Constable of the Greater Manchester Police. Authorities in the UK had been expecting something, but they didn't know what or when. And interestingly, on our last episode of Target USA, Sir Julian King, Commissioner for the Security Union from the EU, said these words. We uh, have suffered a series of, of horrible attacks over the last two years or so across, across Europe uh, at the hands of uh, terrorists uh, inspired by Daesh, uh, ISIS, uh, who are targeting not one country or another country, uh, they are targeting uh, our way of life mm-hmm. uh, and our values, and they're trying to uh, generate um, and disrupt relationships across communities, across the European Union. Uh, there's, no one, there's no one way they do that. Uh, so we've seen quite sophisticated attacks uh, directed, sometimes staffed from um, Iraq and Syria with mm-hmm. people who've, who've been fighting there coming back to Europe and in an organized way trying to do a a big attack like the attack in in Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we've also seen uh, individuals, some of whom have never traveled outside of the EU, who rapidly become uh, radicalized uh, and who uh, use everyday objects, uh, whether it's a, a kitchen knife or uh, famously, a truck in the horrible attack in in, in Nice and repeated in in Berlin uh, to uh, turn everyday objects into into weapons. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to respond to these different and various sorts of terrorist threat. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's absolutely impossible to stop every terror attack. But earlier this year, Assistant Commissioner. Of Scotland Yard, Mark Rowley said they had stopped more than a half dozen terror plots since 2013. And he also said there were 500 live counterterrorism investigations going on at any given time. The complexity of these investigations is something the layman simply cannot, even though we think we have a good understanding of them, get our minds around them. So we turn to one of the best in the world at analyzing and putting into context complex counterterrorism investigations. Philip Mudd is a former top executive at the CIA and the FBI. Philip, the Manchester attack, even though we've been hearing for months, many months, that terrorists wanted to launch an attack in the UK, it seemed to surprise people. Well, a couple ways of looking at Manchester. The first way is pretty simple. It's statistically almost inevitable. If you're going to sit on 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 cases and make a judgment every day about which of those cases might go south, which 22-year-old might decide that this is the week he's going to operate, eventually you're going to lose one. 
The interesting aspect of this, though, is the hybrid nature of it. When we've seen homegrowns in the past, or what are called homegrowns, you get somebody who looks at a video, gets a kitchen knife, and goes and tries to attack a police officer. When we've seen central, centrally organized operations, you might get something like what we saw in Paris or Belgium. This is something like the middle of the road here. Somebody who appeared to operate in the at the arena by himself, but he had a pretty sophisticated backpack weapon, and he picked a target that's a little higher end than most homegrown. So I think we're going to see more central connectivity, but this is a bit of a unique one. What makes you think the the weapon was sophisticated? Well, in terms of sophistication of the weapon, when I look at this, my bar for a homegrown would be pretty low. Did somebody just go and find a, a handgun or a steak knife? In which case I look at it and say that's an emotionally driven person who might have made a quick decision to go out and do something. Or did somebody spend at least a few days or more getting training or learning off the Internet how to produce a device? I don't mean sophisticated in terms of high-end capability to build the device. I mean in terms of the thought process that's well beyond let me just go to the kitchen and find a knife and run out of the street and attack a policeman. So with your uh, FBI investigators uh, hat on and 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 your your CIA analyst hat on. Uh, what do you think about um, um, figuring out who he's connected to? How do you how do you do that? What what things are you looking for first to help you figure that out? I'm looking for two pieces. The first piece is really time sensitive. That is, what is the circle around the individual in the digital age, especially now that we have a handful of names. That's everything from cell phone and email to going to do property searches and getting fingerprints off houses. For example, if they're building the device or holding the device in an apartment, I want to make sure I can identify every fingerprint in that apartment. I want to interview everybody who's talked to this guy for at least the past year. That includes family members who might be disconnected. That's labor intensive. It's time sensitive, obviously, but that's easier than the second question. If he was trained to do this, that suggests that there's an overseas cell, maybe in Libya, that has targeted the West. How do you track back and find them in a war zone, and how do you get the U.S. military and others, U.S. intelligence, along with British intelligence, on the same page to eliminate that cell? That's a months or years-long process. Philip, looking at the way in which you just laid that out, um, it, it, that seems to be an enormous amount of person power, people power that's necessary to, one, to try to do this investigation, but also knowing that there are people like him that are out there that might have been uh, connected to or somehow uh, engaging with the Islamic State group takes a lot of people to try to keep up with them. Is that even possible? It's not possible because of, of a couple of things. Number one, the numbers game that, that we've discussed over time. This, the second is the advent of operational security by these groups. If you look at following al-Qaeda in the 1990s to following ISIS and ISIS affiliates in 2017, you got everything from using, using coded language, with which security services can figure out, to using the dark web and encrypted apps and locked smart smartphones, as we saw in the San Bernardino case. So the increased operational security of these individuals, the numbers of them, and the fact that some of them aren't really closely connected with a central group that you can target with intelligence, this game is a lot tougher in some ways than it was back when we were sitting around the threat table in, in 2002, 2003. So you're talking about that encrypted application process situation. I've talked with a number of your former colleagues who've mentioned that this is the, this, that problem is, is bedeviling them at every turn. 
Um, what's your understanding of the current situation in terms of the problem with these encrypted apps? Why is it such a problem for the FBI? I think people look at this from the outside as a technical problem. That is a radical underestimation of how significant this is for intelligence and law enforcement. The first question you have in a case like this is how do I map this individual's network? It's almost like a spider web. Who's flown into that network in the past year or two? Radicalizers, fundraisers, somebody who might have simply known that there was an attack afoot, somebody who provided weapons, somebody who provided documents and potentially traveled to a place like Libya. If you don't have the capability to look at how someone communicates, think of how difficult it is to map that person's life, especially now that that person's dead. You wanna do interviews for weeks or months and try to recreate someone's life? The fastest way to do that is to see where'd they get money? That's electrons. Who'd they email? Who'd they text? Who'd they call? When you get a locked smartphone, when you get encryptions, encryption, it's not just a tactical problem. It's simply the inability to map a network that will allow you to take it down. And that's the problem law enforcement intelligence has with the dark web and with encrypted apps. And do you think that they learned about this tool that they could use to their advantage? I'm talking about the terrorist here just through trial and error, or did this have anything to your thinking to do with leaks and the Edward Snowdens and other people who've been talking about capabilities? I don't, I think leaks are, are part of the problem, but if you look at the proliferation, not only among terrorists, but among everyday citizens about encryption, the number of everyday citizens who are simply using encryption for business applications is increasing dramatically. I don't think you need a leak for a, even a common terrorist who doesn't have a great education to determine I can get this off the internet. These people read the media, they read newspaper accounts about how terror cells are taken down. They watch TV. So you can, someone might want to trace this to Snowden. I would not. I would simply trace this to the increasing uh, interest in privacy among common citizens and the fact that these tools are so readily available. They're everywhere. It's unfortunate that bad guys are able to use this, but that's just the nature of the, the time we live in with this technology. Tell me about what you think um, was his, his, his plan, based on what you know, uh, about getting to this arena and how uh, he managed to uh, do it without being seen. There's a couple of aspects you've got to look at this. And, and the first is, as you're, as you're suggesting, how did he get there without being known? People talk about individuals like this being on the radar. That doesn't mean anything to me. Being on the radar could be 5,000 people. I need to know what tier he's at. Is he at the highest tier, which means physical surveillance, or is he just on a watch list? If you're on a watch list, somebody who's in the basement building a device and exercising good operational security, I don't know how you find him in a city like New York or Washington, or in this case, Manchester. If you look at the location he was going at, people keep talking about this as a soft target. It is not. A soft target to me is the Washington Metro. I can get on there and I do every day. It's not secured. At least in this case, we had perimeter security. That is people checking bags and backpacks uh, as, as individuals go in. I suspect this individual saw that perimeter security and realized he had to detonate early. There might have been worse casualties if there had been no security at this facility. And I think we ought to take heart that perimeter security uh, made a difference in this case. So that is the question that I want to ask you to follow up on um, with reference to security. I've heard that there was reduced or perhaps no security after this event was over because that appears to be the standard practice in many places. Is that your sense of what took place there, or you you believe that, that, that there was still security there? 
by security, I'm simply referring to whether somebody says, I need to look at your backpack a moment. Some of the people who have spoken about going to that concert talked about having their bags checked. That alone, for someone who is on an emotional trigger, this person knows that within the next seconds or minutes, he's going to lose his life. That's an emotional knife edge. Even if that person sees limited security, that is a guard when you're giving your ticket, say, we need to look at your bag for a moment, like I do when I go to an NBA game. That person's going to say, wow, I better trigger now because if they find my device, this whole effort I've put into conducting an operation is going to fail. I think this person triggered outside the complex because he realized that if he got close to giving a ticket in, people were going to say, we got to check your bag. And that would have mean the jig would have been up for him. No operation. Okay, looking looking at what happens now as 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 others who may be in the same boat as he have seen what he did. The folks in the UK have said they believe that uh, another attack is imminent. So what do you think is going through the heads of those who might have seen what he did and are thinking maybe this is my time? As many raids as possible, including people who are going to be released later because they are not part of the network. You cannot afford to sit around for 24 hours and say, we're not going to pick up people at location X, Y, or Z because we don't have perfect information that suggests they're part of the network. The default now is get all the data you can. That includes everything from apartment numbers to cell phones to email addresses. Pick up everybody you can. A certain percentage of them will be unrelated to the to the incident here. But you're talking about moving quickly because the people, if there are people at the perimeter of this investigation, are watching this on TV saying, wow, the, the, the investigators are going to find me soon. Maybe I should go, go do my own thing because if I wait a day or two, I'm going to get arrested. Speed is of the essence. Pick up everybody and sort them out. Phil, one thing that you said to me maybe about six months ago was that we quite often get too far ahead of the process when things like this happen and decide that you know attribution is important, not really looking at uh, what it is that the individual did and, you know, automatically assume that some organization has to be behind this. Uh, and that's not the case in this particular situation um, because it's pretty clear that there was some strong connection between him and some terror group, maybe the Islamic State group. But um, what can you say, what's your recommendation for us when we consider uh, no doubt more attacks that are going to be coming, some of which may actually be because of his how do we look at the person and how do we make a decision about what happened, uh, what the person does, and whether or not that person is connected to some organization or is, is, is acting on his or her own? There are characteristics to every investigation. And when you're at the center of one of these investigations, one of the reasons you get paid as an executive is to keep your cool. When you look at an investigation like this, let me give you the kind of characteristics you want to understand. Communication, that is cell phones, email, etc., money moving travel, including travel documents and travel routes, co-conspirators, obviously, is someone else involved, uh, radicalizers who persuaded someone that this was okay. You want to look at this methodically in the midst of chaos and say, I want to go through every one of these elements of the investigation, and I want to ensure that before we say we understand where the money came from, where the radicalization came from, we distinguish between facts and speculation. If we say he was not radicalized from outside, I want to be dead certain before we come to the conclusion that there was no radicalization that we looked down every avenue. So it's breaking down the investigation into constituent components, 
and making sure that analysts don't leap too quickly, as they often do. Think of the Iraq WMD story. Leap from what I think happened to what I know happened. And that's where executives come in. Keep cool and make sure we step through every step of this methodically. What is it that I haven't asked you about that you, as a former executive at CIA and FBI, uh, would like to say, would like us to know about this situation that you believe would be beneficial for us as we think about it and other situations that are sure to come moving forward? One of the questions I think that differentiates experts and outsiders who view these incidents is that I look at this as a relatively isolated circumstance. That is, in the context of everything from organized crime to the proliferation of opiates in this country to gang activity in this country, people are going to look at this because the images are so stark. The thinking about the loss of life of an eight-year-old is so tragic and say, this represents the new phase of ISIS. We, we have a threat in America and the president should do something about this. It's a tragedy. If you look at this and overestimate it, making the enemy 10 feet tall, you tend to dedicate, in my judgment, too many resources and too much time to this. This is a problem. It is not an existential problem for our culture compared to the other kinds of violence that we see in American cities today. You should grieve, but don't have to overestimate the extent of the problem. In some ways, that plays into the hands of the adversary that wants to portray themselves as a battlefield uh, adversary for us and not simply a low-budget terrorist group that occasionally can conduct an attack. That's Philip Mudd. And what you heard, at least his portion of the interview, is the main reason why, hands down, I think he's perhaps the best counterterrorism analyst anywhere in the world. To the point... What he says means something, and it makes sense. Now, what does this mean for security in the U.S.? I spoke with a senior U.S. counterterrorism official, and that official said on the 23rd of May they have several questions they want to answer. Did this individual try to get into the venue? Did he wait until the end? That person said all of that information is still coming through. And that individual said, as we learn more, we will definitely look to update what those indicators are and make the recommendations that are necessary to those who manage venues like the one that was targeted in Manchester. That individual also said, a senior counterterrorism official, for those inspired by violent extremist propaganda, soft targets seem to be more and more of interest. And that individual said, we've seen over the last years a greater interest in locations outside of secure zones at airports, big holiday events around a mall where someone uses a car, and even weapons like knives and not just explosives. It would have been great to have that senior counterterrorism official on this program, but that person could not put their voice on a program, simply on background. But we were grateful to get the information. Bottom line. In the U.S., we will probably see changes in the way security is conducted at the end of high-profile events, concerts, sporting events, etc., where large numbers of people exit a stadium or an arena. In the past, as has been the case in many places around the world, security is relaxed or not as focused at the end of events. We may see that change and be just as intense at the end as it is at the beginning. That's it for this week's program. Whether it's terrorists, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, America has a target on its back. And on our next program, we'll investigate the threats facing the U.S., the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and their impact on Americans. And obviously, the U.S.'s allies are a big part of that process. So if the story originates 
inside or outside. It doesn't matter. We'll be covering it. That's coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, thank you for joining us. And please follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's one word, Tango, Uniform, Sierra, Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, J, the color green, at WTOP.com. That's whiskey, tango, Oscar, Papa, dot com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Today on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by actor, producer, director, author. What else can you do, Brian Cranston? I sweep floors. You do? And I load a dishwasher really, really well. Do you unload it? Not too many. Okay. <laughs> we could give you a job in our the house. The talent is loading it, not unloading. No, the talent is buying the dishes that fit together and not the dishes that I buy that don't fit in the dishwasher. Well, I could teach you how they can fit. Okay, Brian, right. thank you. That's Brian Cranston on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. Be sure to listen on Podcast One or through the Podcast One app and Apple Podcasts.